Well, I'll tell you, it's been a great day so far, but I'm just gonna be honest with you. I was coming into this weekend a little bit sad. And, and the reason why I was a little bit sad is because I was hoping to, like I have in the last two years, walk out here in my Patrick Mahomes jersey and throw out boxes of Mahomes crunch to the church. And some of you have been around here, you know what I'm talking about. And now I can't. And, um, and so, you know what? I, I usually ask you who you're rooting for, but let's be honest, who really cares? All right, let's who, who cares? I don't care. I hate this game. No, I'm kidding. Hey, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29, please. Genesis 29 and Genesis 30 is where we are gonna be today. And we are actually moving right along uh, with this story that God is writing for the world through the family of Abraham. And if you've been with us these last few weeks, then you know that the spotlight has moved away from Abraham and Isaac, and now it is solidly on Jacob. And we are tracking with his journey and boy, what a journey he has been on, wouldn't you agree? I mean, we first learned that he sells, or he blackmails his brother into selling him the birthright, and then with the help of his mom, manipulates their father Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing. And then again, with the help of his mom, they deceive um, uh, Isaac into sending Jacob away under this idea that Jacob needs to go find a wife from somewhere else so he doesn't end up like Esau. But in reality, it was their rescue plan to get Jacob away from his very angry, very bitter brother who was ready to kill him. And so Jacob travels many, many miles away to his uncle Laban's place. And when he gets there, he meets Rachel, which is Laban's daughter. And he falls head over heels for her. And he's like, what do I got to do to marry her? I'll tell you what, I'll give you seven years of my life. And Laban's like, that's a sucker, but okay. And, and so Jacob works for seven years and at the end of that seven years, he's like, I'm ready to get married. And so they have the wedding, but on the wedding night, Laban, who is dishonest like Jacob, he pulls a switcheroo and Jacob ends up marrying Rachel's older, somewhat less attractive sister, Leah. And, 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 and then we find out that Jacob has to work another seven years. So Laban's going to let him go ahead and marry Rachel too a week later, but in exchange, he's got to work for seven more years. So now 14 years he's got to work and, and, um, and for his father-in-law, and that's what it costs him for these two wives. And can we all just admit together what we've been admitting for several weeks? This is messed up. Would you agree? This is, this is messed up. Now, as we move forward, you're gonna see as God continues to write this story through Abraham's family, Jacob, you're gonna, you're gonna see today that Jacob has fled from one very unhappy home that, that included his father and his mother and his brother, Esau. And now he is gonna find himself in another very unhappy home a few years later. Now, I said this last week, I'll say it again, I don't feel sorry for Jacob, and I don't think any of us should feel sorry for Jacob, but I will say this. You know who I do feel a little bit sorry for in this story? Leah, that's right. I feel sorry. I feel sorry a little bit for Leah, the older, not-so-pretty sister, and I think when we read the text together today, I think you're going to see why um, I kind of have some, some sadness or some compassion for her. She is going to spend her whole marriage craving and desiring Jacob's attention and wanting his affection only to watch him year after year give that away to her sister. 
I mean, she's gonna spend her life with a husband whose heart belongs to somebody else and who only married you because he got duped into doing it. I'm sorry, that's a sad life. That's a, that's a hard go at life. So just so you have a little bit of a timeline here, Jacob is away from his family for seven years. At the end of that seven years, he ends up marrying two women, sisters. He got tricked into it, into marrying one of them, and now he's going to work another seven years to fulfill his obligation. And do you know what happens in that, final, that second seven years? Do you know, you know what happens during that time? Lots and lots of babies are going to be born. Funny how that happens, you know? Lots of babies are going to be born. 11 sons, to be precise, and one daughter. Now, if you've read your Bible or you've been around church for a very long time, um, then no doubt you have heard this phrase before, the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, it's probably not brand new, and if you're not familiar with what that is, that's perfectly fine. I'm gonna explain it to you. But the 12 tribes of Israel is kind of a foundational, concept to how the rest of the Old Testament goes and understanding what that is all about. So all of these sons that Jacob is going to be having over these next few years are going to become the ancestors or the forefathers of very large families themselves. And uh, these families are often called tribes. And so these families are going to grow into these tribes, and there'll be 12 of them, and these 12 tribes become what we know today as the 12 tribes of Israel. And these 12 tribes is where you start to see the explosive growth in numbers of Abraham's family. So the 12 tribes of Israel become the Israelite people, also known as the Hebrews, also known as the Jews. So when you read Israelites, Hebrews, or Jews in the Bible, we're talking about the same group of people. They are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as you read through the Bible, you're gonna realize that as you are introduced to people in the Bible, you are introduced to them by their name and their tribe. So for example, when we meet Moses, uh, a little bit later on, further into the Old Testament, we are gonna learn that Moses is from the tribe of Levi. Levi was one of Jacob's sons, and he had a family, the Levites, and that's the family line that Moses came from. Um, take Joshua. We're not gonna learn much about him or anything in this series, but Joshua will become a mighty leader of the Israelite people, and Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim was another one of Jacob's sons who had a family, and he's from that tribe. You know, King David, he's often referred to as King David from the tribe of Judah. The Judah was one of Jacob's sons who had a family, and that's the family. He All of this together, you know, makes up the nation of Israel. Now, down the road even further, and like I said, we're not gonna get into this in our, in our Genesis series very much, but a little bit, but uh, all of these tribes grow into large families and large people groups. They all end up eventually in the country of Egypt, and over the course of 400 years, this family is gonna explode into growth by many estimates, well over a million members of this family, and Pharaoh is gonna take notice of all these Hebrews and how large they are getting, and he's like, they're gonna become too powerful for us if we don't do something, so he made them slaves. And, and then um, the Israelites, they cried out to God for help because their lives had become very hard, 
in Egypt and God heard their cries for help and he sends Moses, remember, let my people go and the plagues and then Pharaoh relents and Moses leads them out and they go across the, the Red Sea on dry ground. Remember all these details? Well, that's what we call the book of Exodus and that's the next book of the Bible. And let me encourage you, if you've never read Exodus, you need to read it. So if you're reading Genesis right now and you get to the very end of Genesis, here's what I'm gonna tell you to do. Flip the page and keep going, all right? And that's Exodus, and those are a lot of those details that, uh, that you're gonna love digging into. But all of that stuff that I'm describing for you gets its beginnings right here in Genesis chapter 29 and Genesis chapter 30 with Jacob marrying these two sisters, and they end up having a bunch of babies that would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Here's how it all begins with these, the explosion of this family. Look at chapter 29, verse 30. His love for Rachel, we're talking about Jacob. He's got these two wives now. His love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. Now, obviously, we weren't there. We don't sit around the dinner table. We don't know what their conversations were like. We have these details from the scripture, and the details of the Bible tell us that Jacob loved Rachel, and he did not love Leah, and that is not a happy home. This is a messed up home, and this is why my heart hurts for Leah. Her husband loves someone else. And sadly, and I say this sadly, because there are a number of folks in our church that knows what this feels like. You know, to be married to somebody, but you're not their number one. Somebody else is. To be neglected. To be the afterthought of the relationship. To be the, oh yeah, I forgot about you person in a marriage. That's, that's Leah. And that had to be really tough. Really, really tough. Look at the very next verse. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. Okay, I'm gonna stop right there because this is just not one of these verses that you just blow past and just read. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved. Please don't miss this reality, friends. The Lord saw it. The Lord saw what was happening with her. He knew exactly what Leah was going through. This is not how Leah thought her, her life was gonna go. She's just like every other young woman who thinks about how her life, her forever after is going to be. And, and nowhere do I think she dreamed of the day that her father would, would dupe her husband into marrying her and she'd have to compete for her sister for their whole lives. That's not how she dreamed of this thing. And God saw it. He, he, he saw her ups and her downs, her highs and lows, all of her sadness, and all of it, God saw it. You know, as a pastor, I can tell you, I wish at times that I had a magic wand and I could just wave it like this and fix people's problems. And I, and I wish that I could just, you know, wave it like this and, 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 and remove an addiction that somebody is wrestling with or, or wave it like this and restore some trust that has been lost in a marriage or, 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 or go like this and fix somebody's financial woes or, 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 or fix their health or, or make their kids believe like their parents do and there are a thousand of other things that I'd love to have a magic wand and just fix for people. But no magic wand exists. But let me tell you what does exist. And let me tell you what is a reality for every single person in this room today. It's this, the Lord saw. The Lord's paying attention. The Lord sees it. 
And this is a reality that if you're not aware of it, I wanna help make you aware of it, that there is absolutely nothing that happens that escapes God's notice. He sees everything. He knows your name. He knows where you live. He knows what you're going through. He knows what brings sadness and joy in your life. He knows when you win and when you lose. He knows what brings you up and what brings you down. He knows your success. He knows your failures. He knows everything because nothing escapes God's notice. And this is just one of the many places in the Bible that reminds us of the fact that God sees it all. And he is very much involved. And God saw it. She's miserable. And God saw it. And if the Lord sees what's going on with Leah, I promise you the Lord sees what's going on with each of us. The Lord sees. So here's, here's what happens next. Look again at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this son too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a, th- a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she, he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. God's response to to Leah not being loved by Jacob was to enable her to have children. And it feels like this. It feels like God is blessing her with kids that she could love and kids that would love her. Not as a fair replacement, but as love that's gonna come into her life. Your husband doesn't love you, but I'm gonna give you a lot of children who you will love and, and will love you back and, and there will be joy in your life. And, and Leah, by the time she has her fourth kid, she's like, I'm just gonna give praise to God. You hear her heart? I just, I want Jacob to love me. You know, she, that's what she desired. I'll be it wrongly. She thought these children would make her husband love her and he doesn't. But when you get to the fourth one, she just said, I'm just gonna give praise to God. And she names him Judah. Where did she learn this? Where did she understand or come to know this concept that, that there was a God who loved her and blessed her? We're not really sure. Her father was an idol worshiper. We'll get into that later. But we don't know. But somehow she made the connection. I'm just gonna give praise to God for this fourth one named Judah, which very special son. We'll talk about him in a minute. So Leah, not getting the love from Jacob and the affection she needed um, caused a lot of loneliness, but God gave her kids and she praised him for it. Do you wanna know who's not happy in this home? Her sister, Rachel. Remember the younger, prettier sister? She's not happy at all. She's not a happy camper. Look at chapter 30, verse one. Here's her problem. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I will die. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever felt that way. Some of you are like, I got lots of kids. You can have one of them. You know, here you go. I got, don't die. But this is her feeling. Give me kids or I'm gonna die. And Jacob becomes angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? This might just be the most true thing that Jacob has said yet in his life. 
Am I God? And the answer is, no, you're not. But that's what he's saying to her. You're mad at me, like, like this is my fault. Am I God? Do I have com- complete control over what's going on with you? I don't. And they're having this argument. Again, this is, this is not a happy home. One wife is not loved, but has no problem find, or having kids, and in that she finds fulfillment. You have another wife who is deeply loved and cherished by her husband, but she can't have children, and that brings emptiness to her life. And as a result, you have this massive amount of jealousy building up between Rachel of her sister Leah. So jealous, in fact, that she will blunder. She'll stumble into the exact same blunder that Jacob's grandma Sarah did all those years ago. Here's this blunder. Look at verse three. Then she said, here is Billa, my servant. Be with her so that she can bear children for me and I can build a family through her. So she gave him, she gave him her servant Billa as a wife and Jacob was with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. So basically what you need to understand is, is, is Rachel sees her servant, Billa, as a surrogate mother. And, and essentially, it's, I'm gonna use your body to do what my body won't do, and, and, and you are gonna have children for me, and I will build my family through you, but these babies will be like my babies. We're just, in a sense, it's, we're using you for this purpose. And, and that's how you gotta see it. This was her solution to help her cope with her barrenness um, as a female, and, and this is no different than, like I said, what Jacob's uh, grandmother did when she came to Abraham, said, we're waiting on this promise, but it ain't happened. Here, I want you to marry Hagar, my servant, and that's where we got Ishmael, and that didn't work out so well. And that goes back to Genesis chapter 16. And just like Abraham before, Jacob is like, well, if you think that's what we should do, I'm in, let's go for it, I guess. Let's go, let's try it. And Jacob's a willing participant. Now look at verse seven. Rachel's servant Billa conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said this, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. Well, that's not healthy. That's not healthy. So she named this son Naphtali. So this family is getting bigger and while it grows, it's getting more messed up. Now, if you're keeping a kid count, here's what's happening. You've, you've got a kid count that is up to six and you've got a wife count that is up to three. And you've got a family count that is misery. You've got sibling rivalry. You've got sisters in competition with one another. And none of this is healthy. Look at verse nine. Because, oh, there's more on the way. Verse nine says, when Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her silver servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son and Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad. Leah served, her servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy am I? The, woman will, the women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. And this is that part of the Bible that, that you just kind of have to, you come to a stopping point and you put your Bible down and you go grab a cup, a, cup, a cup of coffee and then you contemplate, am I still reading the Bible? <laughs> it, it, am I still reading the Bible or did I somehow get a copy of a transcript of the Dr. Phil show? Like what is this all about, you know? Am I still reading the Bible? Because this is messed up. 
this is messed up. So just in case you, you didn't follow all of it, we have a kid count that is now up to eight. We have a wife count that is now up to four and ain't nobody happy. And I can't even imagine what a life like this could be like. And you know, as we go to, uh, um, as we, I'm sorry, I gotta turn this off because somebody keeps texting me and it's going ding, ding, ding. I don't know if you can hear it. I uh, love technology except when it messes with your sermon. And so, uh, so you have uh, uh, this unhappy home and I don't think any of us in this room can really relate to what this life is like. I don't know anybody that's had four wives all at the same time and a bunch of kids to go, all trying to build a happy home. It's, it's hard to relate. You know, I hate to admit this. I'm almost a little embarrassed to admit this, but there is this ridiculous show on TV that I have seen more than a handful of episodes of, and maybe you've heard of it, but it's called Sister Wives. Have you heard of this weird, crazy show? Well, I'm not promoting it. I'm just acknowledging this is weird. So you have this camera crew that for over the last 10 or 12 years or so, I guess, have followed around this guy named Cody Brown and his four wives as an attempt to show the world what modern day plural marriage is like. And, and, and I haven't seen all the episodes, so just a couple. I was actually surprised they were still making it. I forgot about this show, but over the holidays, my wife and I found it. We're like, this is still on? And they're new episodes, so we watched a few of them. And here's how I would describe this show if you've never seen it. It's like a train wreck that you can't turn away from. So we watched a couple of these over the holidays and, and here's what we saw, that, that nobody's happy in this family. Ain't nobody happy in this family. There's infighting, there's backbiting. Nobody can agree on anything. One of the wives is currently on the out. She's not even with the family. She has to live by herself. She's kind of been exiled from the group. And another wife is threatening to leave over all this unhappiness. And, and all the wives are fighting for the attention of their husband. There's jealousy among them. Some of the kids have gone absolutely wild. They can't decide where to live. And they cannot figure out how they're gonna get happy again. And like I said, it is a mess. And when they started this TV series, they were hoping to show the world how normal Normal plural marriage looks like and can be today, but what I think they have inadvertently done is give the world its best example of why God's design between one man and one woman for life is the best design, okay? That's what I think they're actually proving here. They didn't set out to prove it, but, but if you watch this show, you're like, yeah, I think God knows what he's doing, all right? One woman, one man for life. When we read about Jacob and these four wives and, and all these babies being born and all the drama that follows in these chapters of the book of Genesis, in a weird way, it made me think of that TV show and how crazy, because that family is dealing with the same things that, that Rachel and, and Leah and the whole family are dealing with, especially when it comes to jealousy, infighting, and vying for their husband's attention. I think God knows best, I really do. So look what happens next, and you'll see what I mean about all this drama. Verse 14 says, During the wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the field and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Remember, Reuben was her oldest boy, firstborn son. Um, Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Now, now listen to this, the fangs come out. You ready? 
She said, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? I was like, you know, I mean, it's like, listen, I had Jacob for a week and everything was great till you showed up and Mexico says, is it not enough that you stole my husband and now you want my mandrakes as well? That's what's going on. And so Rachel said, very well, he can be with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. And Leah's like, okay, I'm listening. All right, keep going. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. She says, you gotta be with me tonight and I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he went to be with her that night and we go, just when you think it couldn't get any weirder, it does. So Reuben, her firstborn son, brings his mom some mandrakes. I don't know if this was like, like, you know, one of your sons picking your neighbor's flowers and say, mom, look what I brought for you. Oh, I, I don't know if it was one of those or just he knew his mom wanted them, but he brought her some mandrakes and gave them to her and, and Rachel wanted them. What in the world is a mandrake plant? Um, mandrakes are a plant that has a long history. In fact, there's other parts of the Bible where a mandrake plant will come up in the conversation. But we, we've read, you can read all about mandrake plants going back thousands of years and, and what people believed about this plant and what they thought it would do. Um, but essentially, mandrake plants produce this yellow berry um, that uh, have been referred to over the years as, as love apples. And it has been believed for thousands of years that this plant has something to do with helping a woman conceive a child and uh, they believe it had like an aphrodisiac involved and it helped with fertility issues and people have believed this. I mean, superstitiously, there's none of that is true, but superstitiously for thousands of years. And this is the plant we're talking about. Some of the... Some of the superstition that surrounds this plant has to do with the fact that when you pull it up out of the ground and you dust the dirt off of its roots, oftentimes the roots themselves look like people, okay? That, that's, that's kind of the whole thing. It's like, so, you know, there, here's an example of one that looks kind of like a person with arms and legs. And, and so you can imagine pulling up some mandrakes plants, believing superstitiously that if you eat or, or use this, that, that all these people, can you imagine a wad of mandrake plants and all these little people hanging down from the roots and you're like, mommy, look what I got you. Let's have more babies or whatever, you know? That was the idea. So the very fact that Rachel and Leah were having a conversation about how important these mandrake plants were says something to the fact that they probably bought in to some degree this common superstition that this plant will help you have babies. Now think about it. Leah had not had babies in a while and so that's why she gave her servant to Jacob and had several children through her to continue to build the family. Rachel's the same way. Rachel never had a child, but she gave her servant to Jacob and, and to have babies through, through her. Um, I, I don't think that it's a shock that both of these sisters who are in competition with one another are trying to do everything they can and grasp at any straw to have more babies, even if that means turning to a superstitious, magical plant to have them. And this is so important. So basically there's this deal that is hatched between these two sisters. Leah would give her sister, Rachel, um, Jacob for the night in exchange for some of these mandrake, mandrake plants. And there's no other way to really understand this. It's just that, that Rachel, her end of the bargain was she had to surrender Jacob and um, you know, some rights to her husband. And this reality pops up in scripture that it's a sad reality, but you've got two sisters who are bartering conjugal rights for Jacob 
with plants. And that's a sad revelation, to be honest with you. You know, I, this one of the things that I, I appreciate the Bible doesn't sugarcoat anything for us, and it just kind of, this is what happened. But to me, I find this a very sad revelation. So that night, Jacob's on his way home from work, and he's just walking through the field, and Leah shows up. She's like, you're with me tonight, buddy, and um, I bought you, and all it cost me was some mandrakes, your foolish sister. No, I'm just kidding. And, and Jacob's like, all right, show me the way, and off they go. Verse 17, God listened to Leah and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. And then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Ishkar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter named Dina. Just to help you keep track of all this, because I know it's a little confusing, we are now up to kid count number 11, wife count number four, mandrake count, a handful, I don't know. <laughs> Let me make this very clear. Leah getting pregnant had nothing to do with these plants, all right, nothing. The Bible is very clear that it is God who opened her womb and it is God who closed her sisters. It has nothing to do with this, this plant. But what does become clear is that Leah, now having given birth to six sons in a row for Jacob, thought that now they could have a proper marriage and it doesn't happen. What is also clear is that Rachel, seeing that these plants failed or it really was superstition, nothing happened, she finally cries out to God for help. And we see in the next verse, verse 22, then God remembered Rachel and he listened to her. So evidently, at some point, she's like, these mandrakes are worthless. God, I need you. I need your help. At some point, she cried out to him, and he listened to her. And here's what happened. He enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. Now, we are up to now 12 children, four wives, no mandrake plants anymore. And, and all these kids. And now, Joseph is the name of a very prominent person in the Old Testament. So as we've seen the spotlight shift from Abraham to Isaac, now to Jacob, you know, soon the spotlight will shift from Jacob to Joseph. And he'll play a very important role as we get to the end of the book of Genesis. Now, I take a step back from this crazy story and I ask the question, what is there in this for us? I mean, what is there for us today? Because none of us have lived a life like this. This is not the kind of life that God would have any of us to live. So, so what's the application other than the fact that this is an extremely foundational piece of the Old Testament in understanding the development of the nation of Israel moving forward and what God is doing? But what's our takeaway? For me, there's one really obvious one that I hope you saw, and if you don't, I'm gonna point it out to you. It's simply this. Everyone in these two chapters, you know, everyone is pursuing what they want with very little regard to what God wants. That's very obvious from, from this text. Every single person that we read about, they're only about it for what they want. Nobody's really talking about what God wants. And let me just tell you this, only focused on what you want 
and not caring a thing about what God wants, that is not a good place to be in. I don't care what the context we're talking about, whether that be in the context of a marriage or a context of a job or the context of being a good neighbor or being a parent or a sibling or a coworker or a teammate or even another member of our church family. Only caring about what you want, not caring about what God wants, that's not a place where you wanna be and that's nowhere that God wants you to be. You think about each one of these people. Think about Leah. Her number one thing, what she wanted more than anything else, was for her husband to love her. And she did a lot of foolish things to try to win that affection. That was her number one. Take Rachel. What was her number one? Being a mom. And she did a lot of foolish things to try to push her own narrative. This is what I want. What about Jacob? Jacob's number one is just fulfilling this obligation of 14 years for these two wives. And it will later become his obligation to build wealth. And that becomes his number one. Not, not really considering what God wants. And, and in the middle of all this, you've got damaged relationships between sisters. You've got manipulation. You've got unhealthy family rivalries. And, and this is not a happy, happy home. And I look at it and I go, it's not happy because everybody's in it for themselves and nobody is in it for the Lord. Everyone is searching and seeking what they want. And friends, I hope you know this. I hope you understand this instinctively. We are no different than that today. We fight the same temptation today and resist it of this is what I want and this is the most important thing and I don't care what God thinks. This is what I want. This is what I'm gonna go for. This is, this is what I need. And, and we fight this to a certain degree even today. I've studied this passage out and I've, and I've often wondered what would have happened or what turn would have taken in this story had Leah had just said this, Lord, I don't know how I wound up in the position that I am in. Lord, I don't know why my husband won't love me. I don't know why life is so messed up, but this is what I'm gonna do, Lord. I'm just gonna trust in you and I'm just gonna trust you with the details of my life and I'm just gonna follow you, Lord. I'm gonna try to be the woman that you've called me to be. And I wonder if Leah had had that attitude from the get-go, how would this story have changed? How would the narrative of her life been different? I think about that for Rachel. You know, Rachel may have said something to say, Lord, I don't know how I got myself in this mess. I don't know how my sister got into this marriage. Lord, I don't know why I can't have kids, but Lord, you know the desire of my heart, but you know, at the end of the day, Lord, whether I have kids or not, I'm just gonna trust you. Lord, you're in control, and I'm gonna let you lead my life, and I just wanna, I want you to be proud of me, Lord, and I'm just gonna do my best to follow you. How could have things been different if that was her prayer? What about Jacob? What about if Jacob had just prayed this prayer? Lord, I have made a mess out of my life. I have no doubt some of our prayers have started very similarly. Lord, I've made a mess out of my life. I don't even know, Lord, how all this stuff happened, but here I am. From this day forward, I'm gonna pursue you. And Lord, I don't know how to fix all this other stuff, but I'm just gonna trust you, Lord. I know you're gonna help me with that. I wonder how their lives would have changed if their prayers had gone like that. I wonder how your life would change if you prayed a prayer like that starting today. Lord, I don't know how this all happened. This is not the script I wrote for myself. But Lord, one thing I'll do is you're my number one. And I will follow you. And I believe, God, that you will help me along this journey. Lord, help me to trust you in every step of the way. How, how, how many lives would change today if that was our prayer? 
What did Jesus say? Jesus is very clear on this conversation. Jesus said what is the most important thing. In Matthew 22, verse 37, he said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. He said, this is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said, all the law, all the prophets, everything I ever said hangs on this. Love me, love other people. What else did Jesus say? In his most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount, he said this in Matthew 6, 33. He said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. There's a very, very strong overlay in the Bible that we need to follow God and make his priorities, our priorities, put him first, put everything in his hands, trust him, seek him out first. It's all over the pages of the New Testament. What isn't is, I'm gonna do my own thing, God. That's not. A few years ago, I was meeting with a family to plan a funeral, which, which is, I do that with every family I do a funeral for. It's like, it's like um, we're gonna sit together and we're gonna talk about the order of service. We're gonna talk about what uh, scripture we're gonna read together. We're gonna talk about who's gonna speak and how, just planning out the service, the flowers, if there's gonna be pictures. We, we plan the whole thing. And, and, uh, and what always comes up is like, what? What music do you want played at the funeral? Most funerals have some kind of music involved. And, and when you're laying to rest a, a, a believer who you know has gone on into heaven, then that music becomes a very powerful piece of the funeral. And I believe at this funeral, um, one of the songs chosen was Mercy Me song, I Can Only Imagine. Have you ever been to a funeral of a saint and you sing I Can Only Imagine? And I think they also um, picked the song um, Amazing Grace or How Great Thou Art. It's one of those very powerful music. And we got done planning this funeral. There's other people in the room with us. And when we, we were about done, there was a friend of the family who was not a believer and, and made it very clear, I'm not a believer. I don't buy any of this stuff. And he said, well, when I die, I want you guys to play this song for me. And there's only one song I want. I want Frank Sinatra's My Way. And I was like, whew. I didn't respond because honestly, I wasn't there for him. And the response would have started like, you've got to be kidding me. And, and that was probably not the right environment for that sentence to come out of my mouth. But you know how sometimes things kind of hit you later, stronger than they hit you in the moment? I got to thinking about that later. And it bothered me to a certain degree. And I was like, you're telling me that this famous song, that I did it my way, you want people to be sending you off to your creator, praising the fact that you did your life your way, and that's it. <laughs> you want to stand before your judge, your creator, and you want to thumb your nose at God and say, I did it my way, not your way. Is that, is that what you're saying? You know, the reality is that most people in this world, that's exactly how they live their lives. Now, they may not be as blatant as that, but they're living life their way. Just like Jacob, just like Rachel, just like Leah, just like Laban. I'm about what I want, and I care very little about what God wants. And friends, that attitude is the farthest thing away from what God wants. That's an attitude that the Bible encompasses as the sin of pride. And, and the sin of pride is, is the one sin that God said, I will oppose you 
on that. Remember God said, I, I will oppose the proud, but I'll give grace to the humble. It's the only sin that God said, I will oppose you on it. And whether that's an opposition in this life, it's definitely an opposition in the afterlife. Said, sorry, you did it your way. You can't come in to heaven. We ask the question, what are you really seeking in this life? What are you really seeking in your marriage? What are you really seeking in your family? What are you really seeking with your career? What are you really seeking with your finances? What are you really seeking out in your retirement years? I mean, if, if you want everything to work out, then your best opportunity for that is to follow the line of thinking that the Lord himself told us to walk down. Seek me first, my kingdom, my righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. As I go back and examine our text, I, I ask the question, did anybody ever even come close to this kind of thinking? And I would say, maybe out of all of them, Leah came the closest out of any of them to getting close to this kind of, she has a long way to go. She's not perfect at all. But if you go back to chapter 29, verse 35, we read about how she had these three babies and every time she said, now Jacob will love me, now he'll accept me, now we'll have a good home. And then when she has her fourth baby, she kind of relents a little bit and says, I'm just gonna praise God. So where do we, if you look at verse 35, she says she conceived again and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I'll praise the Lord. So she named him Judah and she stopped having children. It's like she was saying in this brief moment in her life, things are gonna be different this time. I'm gonna stop hoping for this. I'm gonna take some control of what my future looks like and I'm just going to praise the Lord for this. Something's different this time. And so she named her son accordingly to something different that was going on in her. And I wonder if some of us are at that place too. Something's different this time. I'm, not, I'm gonna stop repeating over and over the things that aren't working out for me. This time, I'm just gonna praise the Lord. Now let me tell you something special about this fourth baby. She named him Judah. And, and this is a, a couple amazing realities around this son, Judah. One of which is this. It was Leah, the unwanted, unloved wife, who brought Judah into the world. Not, not Rachel, not the younger, prettier love daughter. It was, it was Leah who brought Judah into the world. And centuries later, it would be through Judah, the tribe of Judah, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would come into the world. And it's another proof that something that didn't start out right God can use to bring about some of the most beautiful miracles in our world. Judah's life did not start right. But what did God turn that into? No matter what situation you find yourself in right now, remember this, it may not have started right, and it may not be right today. But if you'll just seek God first, anything is possible. And, and maybe, maybe that's your marriage you know, everything that we're studying today is in the context of marriage, so maybe that's your marriage. Maybe you'd say, my marriage didn't start right, and my marriage is not right, but if the two of you are seeking God first, anything is possible. Anything is possible when you put God first. You know, Genesis 29 and 30 are a ex very extreme example, but it also reminds us that nobody is immune 
from these kind of struggles within a marriage. And maybe even as we studied this, this scripture out today, some of you might even say, my, my marriage is not going great, or it's been a little bit rough lately, or you might say the honeymoon's definitely over, or we've lost our spark, or there's whatever language you wanna say. Some of you maybe have come in here today very burdened over this. Maybe a text like this dredges up some emotions. If you ask me, what's the best thing you can do? I get asked that all the time, and I, my answer is always the same. What's the best thing I can do? I think the best thing you can do is you can reach over and you can grab this, the, the hand of your spouse. And maybe you've never prayed together, or maybe it's been so long since the two of you got on your knees together in prayer. But I would grab the hand of your spouse and I would just start with this. I would pray, God, teach us to make you number one. I think that's where you start. God, teach us to make you number one. And you stay committed to that. And you seek him first in your marriage, each one of you, and anything is possible. And I've seen it many times. God can make something beautiful out of something that's not beautiful right now. You know, I, I share this at pretty much every wedding that I ever do. And you've, heard, you've seen this before, I would think. If not, I'll share it with you. I always say to this young couple standing in front of me, and I say, you know, marriage is a lot like a triangle. You heard of this? Triangle. You've got God at the top of that triangle, and you and your spouse are at the bottom of that triangle. And here's what's an amazing thing about marriage. As both of you grow closer to God, you will grow closer to each other at the same time. Seek him first. That's what you gotta do before anything else. And you might be amazed at what God can do in your marriage when you both together put him first. Dear Lord, I just give you praise as always for this scripture. And Lord, I thank you that you don't sugarcoat any of the details. Lord, I pray that you help us as a church family understand what you are doing in, in Abraham's family and how all of this leads us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's not a one of us in this room today that has not been impacted because of what is happening in Genesis. Lord, I pray you help us deeply understand how we are loved by you and how you desire for us to have a great life, a great life of following you, a great life of putting you first in every walk. That Lord, we believe what your word says that if we seek you first, all these other things will be added to you. It may not look like what we want, it may, not, it may very well look like what we want, but Lord, it may not always work out, but it will be what is best. It will be what you want. And Lord, if it's what you want, then it's what we want. Because you know best. So Lord, I pray that you help us be humble in our daily walk. That Lord, we would not let pride creep in and make it about us. That Lord, that we would always look to you. And that Lord, we would look to you for everything. Lord, this is our prayer. And we thank you most of all that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. 
And Lord, what that means we know is that if we haven't lived a perfect life, none of us have. But you still died for those sins and we can still be saved. We can still be redeemed. We can still walk with you. We can still be a part of your family. And one day, we'll be in eternity with you. So Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.